Hello, and welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I am so glad that you are back here with me this week so that we can jump right back in to talk about Coral Watts. I hope everyone had a great week. And so let's just jump back in where we left off. Now, remember last week we talked about Detective Paul Button and the Michigan Police Department had scared Coral Watts. He had thought he was getting away with murder, literally, but uh, he felt the news tightening. So he decided that Texas was the place for him to be and he had left town. So let's just jump right back in. Now, Coral Watts left Michigan, and he didn't even tell his mama that he was leaving the state. He scraped up a, up enough money to buy a plane ticket, and he flew to Texas. When he got to Texas, he made arrangements to be picked up by his friend Harlan Silcox and his wife, Pat. The couple asked Watts to stay with them until he got settled, but Coral said no, he didn't want to impose, because we know, you know, Coral's a polite guy. So instead, he slept in their car a few weeks while he looked for a place to live. And I just want to stop for a minute and say, I don't know about any of y'all, but I have never had any overnight guests tell me that they don't want to impose on me and instead decide to sleep in my car. But apparently this is a kind of a serial killer thing to do because... This is the second time now that I've read about a serial killer who was asked to stay with someone because they felt sorry for him, and he said no, and instead he didn't want to impose, and instead slept in the car outside in the driveway. I don't know. Uh, Coral also stayed in the car for several weeks instead of staying inside. I don't know. Maybe it's just one more of those odd ticks. They don't really want to be inside with other people. But I just thought that was interesting that this is the second time now that I've come across some serial killer who'd rather sleep in a car. But whatever. Um, I'm kind of getting off track here. So anyway, uh, Coral did find a job. And so after he secured a new job there in Houston, he went back to Michigan to pick up his beloved car and drove all the way back to Texas. Now, like I told you, Officer Paul Button was not done with Coral Watts, and he continued his search for Coral until he realized that he had headed to Houston. So, when he found this out, he immediately contacted the Houston Police Department and told them about the man that had taken up residence in their city. He then created a 19-page dossier that detailed everything that he had on Coral Watts and mailed it to the Houston Homicide Division. And that's where Detective Doug Bostock received it. Bostock didn't waste any time. After he read the dossier, he decided he better go drop in on Watts himself at his new job and ask around about him. Now, when he got there, he found out that the boss was already done with Watts, that he wasn't a good worker, he messed stuff up, he was sloppy, and he was ready to fire him. But Bostock said, listen, could you please do me a favor? This guy is a suspect in several murders in Michigan, and we really want to keep our eye on him. So could you keep him around for a little bit longer? 
The boss agreed because he wanted to help Houston PD out. And so they began keeping an eye on him. But after two months, the police had gotten nowhere. At that point, Watts was still keeping himself out of trouble and hadn't gotten back up to his old ways. And the boss was over it. So Bostock and Watts' boss agreed, cut him loose. So Watts was fired. So Watts replied to his boss, well, that's all right. I've already gotten a job in Dallas. And so he told the boss for his next paycheck to Dallas. So Detective Bostock got after it and he immediately mailed a copy of the file he had on Watts to the Dallas Homicide Division to warn them about what, about who was heading to their city. But remember, we talked about this in the first episode. Even though Watts may not be the smartest academically, he is street smart. And he wasn't going anywhere. He recognized that he was already being watched. So he didn't go to Dallas. Instead, he kept using the address that the Silcoxes had, or the Silcoxes address that he'd been using to get mail. And he used it to apply for jobs to get his mail. But he moved six more times in the Houston area, never changing his address on anything else. So, of course, this threw the Houston PD off his trail, and it took him a while to catch back up to him, but they were not giving up. So, in the summer of 1981, Watts moved to the little tiny town of Columbus, Texas, which is about 70 miles west of Houston. He got a job there, but on his days off, he couldn't stay away. He'd drive into town, into downtown Houston. Now, he did this for a while. And then he decided he was going to move to Eagle Lake. And that's another small town right outside of Houston. But same thing. He would work during the week. And then on his days off, he'd drive into town. Now, during all this time, when Coral had first moved to Houston, and for quite some time, really about for the first year that he was in Houston, the mayor, mayoral campaign, sorry, tongue twister, uh, started to kick off in Houston. And it was in full swing. Now, the problem with this was that it created a lot of political unrest, especially within the Houston Police Department, because they were divided on who they believed should be the next mayor. Now, what that did was it created a distraction so that Coral Watts could slip through the cracks because at that point the police had their focus on all the wrong things and Coral Watts was about to take full advantage of that. Watts continued to live in Eagle Lake but he got a job back in Houston as a metro bus mechanic and so that way every day he drove into town from Eagle Lake. This also helped him keep off of the radar from Houston PD. But Detective Bostock continued to follow Watts. And just like in Michigan, Bostock also put a tracking device on Watts's car. And at first it worked. He knew where Coral Watts was at all times. But just like in Michigan, Watts found it and removed it from his car. 
And that's when he felt safe. And that's when all hell broke loose. On September 1st, 5th, 1981, Watts was out cruising the streets of Houston when he saw an attractive young woman in her car. He decided he was going to follow her and see where she was going. Now, as you know, once he sets his sights on someone, he doesn't give up. And I feel like this proves it uh, without a doubt. Because once he saw this woman, he followed her all the way from Houston, Texas to Austin. Now, the woman's name was Linda Tilly, and she was on her way back to her apartment. She was a student at the University of Texas, and she had just returned to Texas after spending the summer in New York, New York at the Parsons School for Design. Watts followed Linda into her apartment complex. He crept up and grabbed her from behind, but Linda, but Linda wasn't going down easily. She fought with him. In fact, she fought him so hard that she ended up knocking both of them into the pool there at the apartment complex. Unfortunately, this gave Watts the advantage over her, and he held her down under the water until she drowned. Watts calmly got out of the pool and walked back to his car and drove all the way back to his home in Eagle Lake. The next morning, Linda Tilly's body was found fully clothed, floating in the complex swimming pool. There wasn't a sign of a struggle. No one heard or saw anything. And the toxicology reports came back with alcohol in her system. So it was determined that Linda was intoxicated and that she must have tripped and fallen into the pool and her death was ruled an accident. Watts continued working in Houston and commuting from Eagle Lake. At this point, he met a lady named Sheila Williams and they began dating and he went to church with her on a regular basis. Everyone in the Eagle Lake community in, and their church congregation and Sheila all thought that Watts was a nice guy. She said he was quiet and well-mannered. Hmm. If only they knew. Elizabeth Ann Montgomery moved to Texas from Massachusetts with her fiancé, Paul, in 1979. But she and Paul had big plans. You see, they were going to go to college and get their degrees and then move back home and help Paul's family run their empire of retail stores. But it wasn't long after they got to Texas that Elizabeth realized that Paul had a severe drinking problem and she was having none of that. She broke off their engagement and threw him out of the apartment. So Paul went back to Massachusetts, but Elizabeth loved Texas and decided to stay. Now her mother was a full-on East Coaster lifelong, so she even at one point asked her what the hell was so great about Texas. And Elizabeth replied to her, a Texan stands tall in his boots. In 1981, Elizabeth met another man named Bill Daigle, and they hit it off and became engaged and moved in together. On Saturday, September 12th, one week after Linda Tilly was murdered in Austin, Elizabeth was at home with her fiancé Bill there in Houston. It was just after midnight, and she told him that she was going to take the dogs out one more time before bed. So she put their larger dog, their Weimaraner, on a leash. And then she had another small dog. I'm not quite sure. It doesn't, I didn't see what type of dog it was, but a small dog, more of a lap dog. 
it was loose. She took the dogs out and she left the door open to the apartment. A neighbor was outside and complained to Elizabeth that she had been letting the dogs use the bathroom on the grass by the apartments. And Bill heard the neighbor complaining, so he stepped outside and he suggested that she take the dogs over to a grassy area near the street. Now, Bill went back inside, but he left the door open just like Elizabeth had, and he started getting ready for bed. When all of a sudden he heard Elizabeth yell, Bill! Oh God, Bill! And then she screamed, he's got a knife! Bill ran out to the courtyard and saw Elizabeth. She stumbled back towards him. The dogs were running around frantically. Elizabeth was grabbing her throat and blood was seeping out between her fingers. Bill grabbed her and pulled her into their apartment. But before he even had a chance to call 911, she died in his arms. It turns out that Cora Watts had stabbed her once in the heart and she died right there. Now, Susie Wolf and her friend Carrie Murphy were free spirits. When they graduated from high school, they left Michigan and moved out to California. They liked California, but they didn't want to stay for long. They had heard from friends that Houston, Texas was the place to be, so they loaded up in their beat-up van that they shared and headed to Texas in February in 1981. Now, for a while, things were great between the friends, but money was tight, and you know what money problems do to anybody. They started to fight and argue, so Susie moved out and moved in with her boyfriend. Coral Watts was not done for the evening. Fifteen minutes after he murdered Elizabeth Montgomery right outside her apartment, Susie Wolf walked into a grocery store two miles away to buy ice cream. It was 1.15 in the morning. Coral Watts spotted her and followed her into the grocery store and watched. When she left the store and got into her car, Watts got into his car and followed her home to her apartment. As she walked to her apartment, Watts snuck up behind her and stabbed her in the arm and then the chest. He stabbed her nine times. The upstairs neighbor heard Susie scream and walked out onto his balcony. He saw Susie lying on the sidewalk with a man standing over her. He ran downstairs to help, and the man ran off when he saw the neighbor. At 2 a.m., Carrie Murphy was woken up by the telephone ringing. It was the Houston Police Department. They wanted contact information for Susie Wolf's family. Now, even though Carrie and Susie were not on speaking terms at that time, Carrie and Susie still lived in the same complex, and Carrie ran to Susie's apartment. She was still her best friend. And Susie had actually been working on reconciling with Carrie right before she was murdered, but unfortunately, that never happened. When Carrie got there, Susie was lying on the grass with the ice cream that she had gone to buy right beside her. Now, as the murders began in Houston, most officials were, like I said, too distracted by the mayoral campaign, and Watts was just doing whatever he wanted to do. People, in fact, would later criticize the Houston PD, saying that they had lost their focus on what was important and had put on all the wrong things. And throughout this whole time period, the Houston PD is going to come under some attack 
because they did. They dropped the ball. And the more we get we go, it's going to be real obvious that they just weren't doing what they were supposed to do. But Detective Doug Bostock, he was not giving up. Even though other people had decided that Watts really wasn't that important, he had still been trying to find Watts on his own time. And he had heard that he was working for the Houston Transit Authority. Someone had seen him in a mechanic's uniform. So he decided he was going to go take a look. Now, at that time, Watts had also moved back to town from Eagle Lake, but he was still using his friend's address that um, Silcox and his wife had let him use. So it gave him a little bit more time to stay off the radar. On Monday morning, January 4th, 1982, Ellen Tam went out for her usual morning jog. Now, she had been hearing about crime, because remember I told you last week that at that point, Houston was number one in the nation for violent crimes. Uh, but her friend said, you know, Ellen was tough, and she wasn't scared. So she did. She went on her normal morning jog before the sun ever came up. She did usually go with friends, but this morning she was alone. At 6.15 that morning, another jogger saw her. They crossed paths. But by 7.45, Ellen's body was found by another jogger. Ellen had been hung with her own sports bra from a low-hanging branch. She was found sitting just two, hanging, I guess you should say, two inches off the ground in a crisscross sitting position. You know, kind of like little kids sit when they're on the floor. Now, the crazy thing was, there wasn't any sign of a struggle. Her clothes weren't torn. She didn't have any defensive wounds. There were no stains on her clothes, no cuts or bruises. And police weren't sure what to make of this bizarre crime scene. Surely Ellen hadn't hung herself with her sports bra. But at first, her death was ruled a suicide. But Ellen's friends and family were having none of that. They knew that Ellen would not kill herself. And so they pushed and had the coroner take a second look. And sure enough, they decided that no, that whatever happened, and even though it was very bizarre, there was no way Ellen Tam committed suicide. And they ended up ruling her death a homicide. Now, Meg and Larry Fossey were married on March 1st, 1980. Meg was a graduate student at Rice University there in Houston, and Larry was accepted to Yale Law School. So the couple agreed. Meg would, of course, stay in Texas and continue working on her graduate degree, and Larry would go to school in Yale, go to law school in Yale, and when he finished, he would move back to Texas. So, Meg moved in with Larry's sister and her husband. On January 16th, 1982, Meg went to dinner with a group of friends. They were all students, and they all went to school together. They were having a great time, so they decided to continue their evening, and they went to a bar to keep hanging out. Everyone had a great time, 
and they stayed until closing time at 2 a.m. And that's when everybody started to head home. Now, Meg had left her car in the school parking lot and had ridden to the restaurant with some friends. So, one of the friends drove her to her car and dropped her off. Meg got into her vehicle to drive home, but she did not notice, like so many other times, that Coral Watts was sitting in the parking lot and he saw Meg get into her car. And he decided that he was going to follow her back to her house. And I think this is one of the things that makes Coral Watts so scary. He doesn't know his victims. He has no connection to his victims. He never even finds out their names. He just spots someone that catches his eye. And then he starts stalking them for however long it takes that evening. I mean, it may be a drive five blocks or like poor Linda Tilly, he'll follow you for 160 miles. It's scary how single-minded he was. And Meg should have been safe. She got in her car. She was driving home. Usually that's, that's when you're safe. But that's not Coral Watts' M.O. He likes to get people when they're right there at their front door. So Watts followed her closely in the car. In fact, he was following so closely that the glare from his headlights blinded Meg and she hit a curb. And when she did, this flattened both of her front tires. So she had to pull over. And don't you know, Coral pulled over too. He pulled up and parked right behind her and got out of the car. He walked up to Meg's window and when she rolled down the window, he didn't even say a word to her. He just punched her directly in the throat and he killed her instantly. He crushed her windpipe. Cora Watts then pulled Meg's body out of the car and locked her into her own trunk. He walked back to his car and he drove away. Now later that morning, Meg's brother-in-law Gregory went to pick up some donuts for the family for breakfast. And he spotted the car one block from home on the side of the road with two flat tires. But Meg was nowhere to be seen. Gregory went home and told his wife, Kathy, what had happened, and they called the police. Police came and looked around but didn't find anything. Now, I don't know why to me, and maybe this is just because I've listened to too many true crime podcasts, watched too much investigation discovery, but I would have looked in the trunk. But for some reason, the police didn't bother. Instead, they towed the car to the central police station so that they could look for further evidence there. And then they let it sit until Monday morning. They got permission to force the trunk open and they found Meg in the trunk. Now, the same night, Cora Watts killed Meg. Yet again, he wasn't done. That's a scary thing. Most of the time, he didn't kill. I mean, it's scary that he's killing women, period. I don't want to sound like I'm making light of that. But the scary thing is, this man's not happy to kill one woman in a night. He's killing two at a time, and no one's noticing this. So the same night that he killed Meg, he decided he wasn't finished. But instead of finding someone in his car, he decided he was just going to walk down the side of the interstate. 
a woman named Julie Sanchez was on the side of Interstate 10 and she was changing a flat tire. Watts walked right up behind her, grabbed her head, pulled her head back and slit her throat twice. He kept on walking and walked right out of sight. Now here's the thing. He thought he had left Julie for dead on the side of the interstate, but Julie's wife, Julie's wife, I'm sorry, Julie's husband was on the way to pick her up. He knew that she was having car trouble and he pulled up and she jumped in the car and told him, I'm going to die. You've got to get me to help. So Julie, Julie's husband drove to a gas station because they didn't think that she could make it to a hospital. They drove to a gas station and called for an ambulance and she survived uh, miraculously. In fact, she would later testify against him and help put him behind bars for good. On January 29, 1982, Alice Martell was attacked outside her home in Seabrook, Texas. Now, this is a little town right off the coast, but it's also not far from Houston. She didn't even know that she'd been stabbed until she woke up in the hospital and she hadn't even seen her attacker. The next night in Galveston, Texas, Patty Johnson was coming home from her job when she was attacked getting out of her car to go into her house. The man tackled her to the ground and straddled her. He then slashed her throat with a knife. A man in a second story apartment heard the struggle and walked outside and yelled at the man to get off the woman. Her attacker got up and casually walked away. He thought that Patty was dead, but she also survived. Now, Patty was able to describe the man, and he sounded a lot like Cora Watts. But when she was given a photographic lineup to look at, she chose a man named Howard Mosley. Now, Howard was no peach himself. He had already been in prison twice, and he was trying real hard to stay out of trouble because he didn't want to go back. He, but when they brought him to jail, it was obvious that Howard Mosley was not her attacker. He was six foot seven. And Patty had described her attacker as five foot ten or eleven. So he was released. Elena Samander grew up in Houston, Texas, and she was the oldest of four children. The Samander family was a close knit type family. They uh, really, even beyond just their immediate family, they were even close to their extended family. And you're going to see just how far those family ties go later on because Elena's mother, Harriet, doesn't let anything go. And she shouldn't. Elena and her cousin, Karen Pappas, made plans to go out for the evening that night on February 6, 1982. Elena was always a stylish dresser. And that night, she wore a black silk shirt, purple corduroy pants, with a gold belt, several gold rings, and she topped it off with a gray rabbit fur coat. Karen and Elena had dinner at 7.30 and then drove to a nightclub called Judges where they ran into some friends from work, Blake Blazer and Paul John, I believe is how you pronounce his name. If I mispronounce anyone's names, I'm really sorry, but I couldn't find pronunciations for anyone's names, so I apologize if I do. 
The four friends spent the next several hours dancing, drinking, and having a great time. And they left judges at 2.15 a.m. Now, Elena was hungry and she wanted to go to a popular late night spot called JoJo's for breakfast. But Karen and Blake said they were tired and they were ready to call it a night. But Paul said he was game and so he offered to drive and they went over to the restaurant. When they pulled up, it was really crowded, but they thought they would, you know, hopefully maybe they could get a table. But they went in and found out that the wait was going to be really long. So they said, eh, forget it. Let's just go on home. So Paul drove Elena to her car. He made sure she was in her car safely. And he even watched her drive away. But Elena decided that instead she would go visit some friends who live nearby. So at 2.45 a.m., Elena pulled up outside uh, the apartment of her friends. And Gregory Rhodes was actually parked next to her asleep in his car. Now, they had both parked near a big gray dumpster, you know, for the apartment complex. When he pulled up, or when Elena pulled up, uh, Gregory Rhodes woke up. He watched her get out of her car, and then he watched a man walk up to Elena, put his arm around her, and pull her behind the dumpster. But instead of checking on her or getting out to see if something was wrong, he just decided to go back to sleep. Now, I can't imagine this. It's obvious that Elena wasn't with this guy, but he just decides, meh, I'll just go back to sleep. A few minutes later, he wakes up because he can hear a series of low moans near the dumpster but again, and a loud thud. But again, he didn't think anything of it and he goes back to sleep. I mean, what a loser. Come on, guy. Several hours later, the garbage truck came to empty the dumpster. Gregory Shaw, the driver of the truck, turned on the switch to activate the compactor when something caught his eye. It looked like a human leg. He immediately turned the compactor off, and when he looked inside, he saw a pair of women's mangled legs. He could tell one of them was broken. So Shaw ran to a payphone and called police. When the police arrived, they found a car parked near the dumpster. Inside the car was a purse with Elena Samander's driver's license on it. They removed the body from the garbage truck and placed it on a stretcher. Elena was only wearing her underwear and pantyhose. Her black shirt had been used as a gag and was tied behind her head. And in fact, it was tied so roughly that her hair had even been tied in the knot behind her head. And she had blood in her nose and in her mouth. That unfortunately for her friends, when they went to knock on the door, the police had them identify her and they had the shock of identifying Elena's body. Now, the next day, as police continued to search, they found more of Elena's personal items a few blocks away in another dumpster. They found her pants, her car keys, her gold belt, and her fur coat that she had been wearing the night before. One month later, Coral Watts moved to a new apartment with Sheila Williams. You know, remember her, the one he'd been dating that she said he was such a nice, respectful guy. He moved in with her and her daughter in a new apartment there in Houston. Now, Emily LaCroix was only 14, but, you know, like so many girls her age, she thought she was grown and she thought that she should be able to do whatever she wanted. Emily and her family lived in Seattle. But when her parents divorced, her father moved to a tiny town named Brookshire, Texas. 
and it's about 37 miles west of Houston. In March of 1982, Emily got mad at her mother because she thought her mother was being too strict on her, and she ran away. Now, she didn't just run away to her friend's house. She hitchhiked all the way from Seattle to her father's home in Texas. Her father was a cook at a truck stop, and Emily got a part-time job waiting tables there at the truck stop restaurant with her father. Now, she'd only been in Texas for one week when she went missing. She got mad at her dad because he was trying to, well, he wanted her to behave and follow the rules also. And he grounded her. Well, she got mad because she just couldn't believe that he would ground her. And so she decided to hitchhike. Unfortunately for Emily, Coral Watts was out on Interstate 10 that night and he picked her up. And it would be the last time anyone saw Emily for a very long time. And in fact, it would be over a year before her body was found. Now, Emily's father, though, they put up, a, they searched, but because no one could find her, her father couldn't even stand it. He left Texas and went back to Seattle. One week after Emily LaCroix went missing, 34-year-old medical student Anna Ledette went out for her morning job or jog around the UTMB campus. She usually went with friends, but on that morning, she went on her own. And she liked to run early because she thought it was peaceful early in the morning like that. Now, on this day, Coral Watts spotted her as he was out driving around. Anna's body was found at sunrise. Her jogging suit was covered in blood, and she had been stabbed 17 times in the chest. Now, Coral Watts's hands were still covered in Anna Ledette's blood when he saw Glenda Kirby just two blocks away. He got out of the car and started for Glenda. Watts tackled Glenda and knocked her to the ground, but his hands were slick and she was able to get away. But she wasn't able, she didn't even put her eyes on the man. She just ran. The police and politicians were still fighting over the mayoral campaign. And they were continuing to miss multiple murders happening right under their noses. I know I've said this several times, y'all, but really, that's all that was going on. They were just focused on who was going to be the mayor and fighting amongst themselves. So Yali Garcia left for work on April 15th, 1982. Usually, her husband would pick her up from work when she was done. But if he wasn't able to, she rode the bus home. That night, Yali's husband let her know that she was going to have to catch the bus. So she left work at 6 p.m. and she got off the bus four blocks from her house. Yet again, Coral Watts saw her get off the bus and she never made it back to her house. Her body was found the next morning in between two houses. She had been stabbed four times. Carrie Mae Jefferson and her husband both worked at the main post office in downtown Houston. Her husband worked during the day. He was a postal worker and Carrie worked at night. She worked the night shift. Now, her husband wasn't happy about this, but Carrie insisted that she was careful, and a co-worker followed her home each night on her way home to make sure that Carrie made it safe. One day, one day, after Coral Watts had killed Yolly, he spotted Carrie Mae Jefferson. She had just pulled up into her driveway when Watts grabbed her and dragged her through her front yard. He grabbed her keys 
unlocked the trunk of her car and threw her inside it. Watts drove off in Carrie Mae's car with her inside the trunk. The next morning, Carrie Mae's husband, James, realized that she never made it home. He was, she wasn't in bed with him. So he called the police and reported her missing. Now, uh, James went outside into the yard and the neighbor said, Hey, I found Carrie's purse in the middle of the street and her watch and her wedding ring were there also. James told the neighbor what had happened, and so friends and neighbors went out to search for Carrie May. They found her car parked five blocks away from home. Now, this is scary. This is how hard Carrie May fought, you guys. There were dents protruding outward of the trunk where she had kicked and fought to try to get out. But it was, and of course, it was obvious to anyone who looked into the car that Carrie Mae had not driven her car herself. Her seat was pushed all the way back, and Carrie Mae was only five feet tall, so there was no way she could have driven like that. And there was blood smears on the trunk itself. But even when they opened the trunk, Carrie wasn't in there, and they were unable to find her body. Sue Searles went to a birthday party on April 24th for a co-worker. Now, Jer James Brent was another of Sue's co-workers, and he was at the party. And they partied all night. Sue didn't leave that party till 5 a.m. They were having a good time. Now, he saw her at leave, and Sue drove home and parked in her driveway, but she never made it inside. The next day, she was supposed to meet some friends for a concert. Her friend Greg Irving, who had also been at the party the night before, called to confirm that she was still going, but he didn't get an answer, but he didn't think much about it. They'd had a big night, so he figured she was probably asleep getting ready for the concert. So around 7.30, when he still couldn't get a hold of her and hadn't heard anything from her, he went by her house, but no one was home. So he left her a note and said, you know, hopefully he would see her at the concert catch up with her later. On Monday, Sue still didn't show up for work, and that was unlike her. Sue never missed a day of work. So her co-worker, Joseph Powell, went to her apartment. Her car was parked out front, and he went upstairs, and there were some lights on, but no one would answer the door. So he went to the landlord and asked if she would use the passkey so they could do a welfare check on her. Now, while he was waiting for the landlord, Joseph went and looked inside Sue's car. Her purse, was, the whole contents of her purse were dumped out on the passenger seat, scattered everywhere, and her eyeglasses were also on the seat, and they were broken. So this obviously concerned him. They opened the door and went into Sue's apartment, but Sue was not there. Her phone had been knocked off the hook, a plant had been knocked over, and there was dirt everywhere. So obviously something had happened in there, but there was no sign of Sue. So Joseph Powell filed a missing persons report on Sue Searles. On May 1st, Sue was still missing and they weren't able to find her body. Now Harriet Samander, Elena Samander's mother, remember I told you she wasn't going to let this go and she didn't. She started tracking murders in the Houston area, and she saw a pattern. And they were very similar to her daughter's murder. But what she didn't understand was why, if she had noticed this pattern, why hadn't the police? 
what were they doing? So she decided, Harriet decided that if the police weren't going to do anything about it, she was going to do something about it. She started out by contacting Chief Lee Brown's office on May 14, 1982. She wanted the police to make a public announcement to warn the public that there was a killer on the loose, but the chief's office blew her off. So then Samander tried to get in touch with Mayor Whitmire, but again, they ignored her. Uh, they said she was overwrought with grief from the murder of her daughter and she was overreacting. So Harriet Samander realized that she wasn't going to get anywhere with the police or the mayor's office. So she took matters into her own hands. And on May 17th, 1982, she called local news reporter Steve Petru of Channel 11. This was the local CBS affiliate channel in Houston. Now she told Petru all about her research and expressed her concern that Houston had a serial killer on their hands. And Petru agreed. He thought that her research made sense and it was scary. So he agreed to interview her on the air. So on, so she did, they interviewed her live on the air and she did. She told the young women in the Houston area to be careful out there. Someone was out there targeting young women and killing them. One of those young women was Michelle Madej. She was very excited to celebrate her 20th birthday. So on May 22nd, she and friends, Linda Rogers and Terry Clark, made plans to go out that night. They were going to go to Judges, the same club that Elena Samander spent her last night out at in February. Before, though, she went out with her friends, her father, Michael, took her out to dinner. She and her father were very close and he was concerned. He'd been watching the news. He had seen Harriet Samander's report and he warned her to please be careful that someone was out there and he didn't want her to get hurt. But you know, young people, she, you know, she said, dad, I'll be fine. I'm going to be safe. We're going to have fun. So Michelle gave her father a kiss and went to meet her friends. The girls had a great time spent the night out, and at 3.30 a.m., they decided to head home. Now, the two girls, the other two girls, they wanted to keep on hanging out, so they were going back to one of the other girls' apartments, but Michelle said, nope, she was tired, and she was going to go on back to her own apartment. Coral Watts saw her, saw her in her car, and followed her back to her house. He watched her get out of his car, he watched her get out of her car and he got out and followed her up to her door. Now she started towards the door, keys in hand. And right about the time she made it to her door, she realized someone was following her and she turned around. And when she did, he grabbed her by the throat and choked her to death. He unlocked the door to her apartment, threw her inside onto the floor. And then he took off all her clothes and all of her jewelry. Now, remember Watts doesn't, sexually assault his victims and he is he's removing her clothes because he's changing his crime a little bit he took her into her bathroom put her in the bathtub and filled up the bathtub with water and he would later tell police when they interviewed him that he did this so that the evil spirits wouldn't come out of her body he then went into her bedroom and just in a rage ransacked it tore it up he didn't take anything he just tore up her bedroom and then he left. Now, the next day, Michelle's mother pulled up outside the apartment 
it was raining and she noticed that Michelle's car was parked outside, but the windows were rolled down. So she walked up to the apartment and let herself in and she called out to Michelle and said, you know, hey, sweetie, you need to go and roll your windows up. It's starting to rain, but she didn't get any answer. So she walked further into the apartment and still called out and didn't get a response. This is when she noticed that the bedroom was a disaster. And this was very unlike Michelle. She normally was very neat and kept her apartment very tidy. She walked down the hall towards the bathroom. And that was when she saw Michelle in the bathtub. And it was obvious to Florence Madej that her daughter was dead. Michelle was lying in the bathtub. Uh, and she, the water at that point had completely drained out. Now, again, there were no fingerprints left at the scene and no clues who had done this. But Coral Watts was about to run out of luck. Because you know Coral, as usual, he wasn't satisfied with just ruining one person's life. He decided he was going to go look for someone else. So at 6 a.m. that morning, he made it to an apartment complex on Hammerley Boulevard. Watts was hiding in the bushes watching, and he saw Lori Lister get out of her car. As she walked toward him, he quietly left the bushes and followed her up the staircase. He wrapped his hands around her throat and began to squeeze. Now, as he squeezed, he dragged her up the stairs to her apartment and asked her where she lived. She pointed up the stairs towards her door, and as she pointed, he asked if anyone else was inside. She lied and shook her head no, even though she knew her roommate Melinda Aguilar was inside. Both girls had actually been getting ready for church that morning. They both taught Sunday school. Now, he continued to drag her up the stairs, and when he opened the door, he came face to face with Melinda, who was standing in the living room staring at him straight in the face. She didn't know what was going on. Her roommate, she didn't know this man, and it was obvious that he had attacked her roommate. She was frozen with fear, and she didn't move or make a sound. But when she saw her roommate this seemed to shake her out of her stupor and melinda yelled for Lori. that got watts's attention so he grabbed he left Lori lying on the floor grabbed melinda and drug her into her bedroom and he began to strangle her and melinda knew that she had to do something or she and Lori were both going to die so she pretended to be unconscious Watts left her on the floor, grabbed some wire coat hangers, and took them and closed the door behind him. She then heard thump, 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 and realized that he was dragging her further, dragging her roommate, Lori, further into the apartment. The man checked back in on Melinda, and she continued to fake it, but watch him through her eyes. They were just barely open, just little slits. Now, she noticed that he was clapping his hands and jumping up and down like he was celebrating. It was scary it was eerie um and watts decided at this point he would take Lori into the bathroom because he really liked how that had turned out before so he started to fill the bathtub up and that was when aguilar knew it was now or never so she jumped up and went over to the sliding glass doors that were in her in the bedroom and she unlocked the door but something told her to go lie back down on the floor again so she did and just as she got settled Watts came back in to check on her. When he left this time, though, she locked the bedroom door, went back over to 
the sliding glass door at her balcony and walked on the balcony. Now they were on the second floor, but she knew she had to do something. So Melinda threw herself off the balcony. She hit her wet head and shoulder on the way down and she was injured badly, but she managed to get up and limp over and her, some neighbors were outside. She told them what was happening. They immediately called 911, but officers had no idea what they were walking into. The officers were told it was a family disturbance. So just as police arrived, they saw a man storm out of the apartment and take off on foot. Officer Schmidt ran after him and Officer Domain went to the car to call for backup. Now on all this, Patricia McDonald heard what was going on and she raced upstairs to check on Lori. She found Lori in the bathtub and she was blue. So she pulled Lori out of the bathtub and started pounding on her back. She said she was so nervous. All and anything she remembered about CPR had completely left her mind. So she just started pounding Lori on the back until Lori started to cough up the water that was in her lungs. And Lori survived the attack also, thanks to McDonald. Now, officers chased Watts down to a dead end in the parking lot and they cornered him. Coral didn't fight. They, he let the officers arrest him and they took Watts to the Harris County Jail. Now, Coral Watts decided to plead guilty to aggravated burglary and attempted murder in the cases against Lori Lister and Melinda Aguilar in exchange for information that would end up leading to the discovery of some of his murder victims. In fact, Watts ended up receiving immunity for 13 murders and six assaults. Now, the DA's office claimed that they did this because they did not have any physical evidence to tie Watts to tie Watts to all those murders. And they were afraid that he would get away again. So they say that's why they did this. But the DA's office also claimed that the families of the murdered victims agreed to this. Now the families say they were never contacted and they never agreed to that. In fact, Harriet Samander, Elena's mother and Jane Montgomery, Elizabeth's mother, were hot. They were mad and they weren't going to let this go. So on August 9th, 1982, Watts began to confess. It took him 28 hours to tell all of it. He didn't, he didn't know any of the women's names, but his memory was spot on about what happened and where he attacked them. And he could lead them to every single spot where he had buried a woman. When Watts was done confessing, he told Detective Ladd that he was glad they caught him because if he ever got out of prison, he knew he'd kill again. Now, when Detective Paul Bunton from Michigan was allowed to talk to him, he asked Watts, he said, Coral, how many people do you think you've killed in all? Watts replied that there weren't enough fingers and toes in the room to match how many people he'd killed. And he said it calmly. He wasn't bragging. Now, Watts, Button, and three other people were in the room at the time. That's a hundred fingers and toes altogether. So let that sink in for a minute. Now, in all the time that Watts confessed and led detectives to the bodies, he never showed any remorse for any of his victims. In fact, after they found Sue Searle's body, he told the detectives that he was hungry and could they get him a hamburger? 
The public was outraged when they heard that he was receiving a plea deal and that he wasn't going to be charged with murder. And in fact, on September 3rd, 1982, after he was found guilty at his sentencing hearing, the atmosphere in the courtroom was so tense that everyone was advised to wear bulletproof vests. Now, Watts was sentenced to 60 years in jail, but because of his plea and because of the laws about good behavior in Texas at that time, it was possible for Watts to be let out in only 20 of those years. Now, during the sentencing, Judge Shaver let his feelings be known about Watts, and this is what he said. Judge Shaver said, I understand their reason for having good time in the Texas Department of Corrections. The criminologists tell us if it were not for good time credit, they could not control their prisoners, that they would have nothing to gain by trying to stay in good standing. As far as I'm concerned, I could care less if you act good or not. I don't care if the slightest thing you do is spit on the wall. If you do not act well, it is my suggestion to the Texas Department of Corrections that they put you so deep in the penitentiary that they have to pipe some light into you and that you serve each and every minute of the 60 years that this court is going to assess against you. Watts rocked back and forth in his chair as he received the tongue lashing and he simply shook his head as the judge continued to go after him. Now, Judge Shaver wasn't the only person who let his true feelings be known. After the trial was over, District Attorney John B. Holmes held a courthouse press conference after the sentencing, and he also let his true feelings be known. He said, I think Coral Eugene Watts ought to be taken out behind the courthouse and shot in the head. But unfortunately, we don't do that in a free society. Coral Watts had only been in prison for a few months when he tried to escape. On February 20th, 1983, Watts greased himself up with jerry curl lotion and tried to squeeze himself out of a window, but he was unsuccessful. This would start a 20-year crusade led by Harriet Samander to keep Coral Watts in prison. So we're going to stop here today, and then next week we'll wrap up what happens to Coral Watts. And it's amazing what happens over the next 20 years. And all I can say is a mother's love and devotion to her daughter drove Harriet Samander to keep Cora Watts behind bars. And thank God she did. Thank you for listening today, everyone. I'd love to hear from you if you have some ideas you'd like to share with me or some other cases that you think would be great for me to cover. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod, or you can email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. Please remember, rate, subscribe, leave a review, and tell a friend to listen to Texas True Crime. Y'all have a good week, and I'll see you next week. Bye.